Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is Michelle W. Malkin, your host. And my guest today is Drew Kugler, a communication and leadership counselor who I know from my graduate work at HUC, who did a communication class with us. And he's been doing this work for quite some time and before that worked in management positions in Nordstrom and Marriott Corporation. He has been uh, published in The American Lawyer and has appeared on CBS, ABC, NPR, and has been a guest lecturer at many graduate schools of business. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Drew on the program was one of the things I got most from his course at HUC when it comes to conflict management and how we deal with other people in our organizations. And his main philosophy, his main belief that he uses in his consulting is the idea of constructive candor. And you can read more about this philosophy on his website. But one of the things that I got most from our course was you just got to do it. (laughs) Um, I mean, you've got to come in with a plan of how you're going to do it and what you're going to focus on, but you just got to have those conversations. And by not having those conversations, the problem just gets worse and worse. So building on that sort of core idea of just rip that bandaid off, have those conversations, and it is better than not having those conversations. I wanted to bring Drew in to sort of look at those issues a little deeper and how that pertains to our Jewish communal work and how that might be different than what he sees in more uh, corporate settings. So Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michelle. It's very nice to see you again. Excited to be able to have this conversation. Uh, I would love to just start uh, hearing from you how you got into the, the unique role of being a communication and leadership counselor and if this was what you thought you would be doing when you yeah. first started your career. No, I remember when I was getting a degree as an undergrad here in California at San Diego State University. Actually, now it goes back to the early 80s. Yes, the early 80s. It was a really interesting degree, but I did not ever think that it was going to turn into an actual profession. I thought I would go into law or journalism, something like that, which I like. However, I uh, then went, as you mentioned, into a sales career after to try to make a living. And the most interesting thing happened one day where a professor came into Nordstrom to buy a tie. And by the time he had completed the transaction of buying the tie, somehow had made a pretty convincing case to think about going back to graduate school. Fast forward back into graduate school now in about the mid 80s. And I had, as now I look back on it 30 years later, a bit of a epiphany walking into class the first day. And not the class that I was taking as a graduate student, but getting to teach a class. And as I walked into that class, and I talk about this on the website in a little more detail, but I really became taken over with this thought that this was an incredibly important class for people to take. And I challenged the students from the beginning, still do it, uh, both in my professional work and in my teaching where I tell you that this is the most important class you will ever take. And I just believe it, have always believed it, and have been able to make a long story short to be able to turn what was then a part-time teaching position and get exposed to some professors who were starting a consulting practice on the side. And since the mid-80s, 
uh, have been able to carve out a career now on my own as a sole practitioner in coaching and, and facilitation since 2000. So that brings us up to where we are. That's how I got into it. You're right, didn't have it as a key target, but it really very nicely presented itself. So I know you work both in the Jewish community and Mm -hmm. in the regular business community or nonprofit community. Have you observed any differences between the work that you do in Jewish communities and non-Jewish communities? Yes, I have. I guessed that you were going to ask this. So I really gave this one a little bit of thought. Thought in two ways. First, I finally, for the first time, sat down and figured out, because I could say I'm very experienced in working in the Jewish community as a coach and as a facilitator and a teacher. Absolutely. (laughs) It all sort of, frankly, it runs together a little bit. But to make that point, including HUC and synagogues and agencies and on and on, I counted up today 43 Jewish organizations that I've been retained at in some way, shape or form. So all that goes to say is if I just take that group, I come away with some pretty clear feelings of certainly the challenges they face as communicators. And of all of them, there is no exception. I find that these Jewish organizations, per professional, if you will, compared to the corporate sector, which as I've said, I've been in, you know, that many years, these organizations struggle a little bit more, and in some cases, a lot more, to establish, just from an objective observation, truly collaborative relationships. Because what happens is, and it's not a stereotype, we can certainly find a stand-up joke or two about it, but (laughs) I find that the Jewish professional tends to, more than not, talk too much, listen too little, and hold more tightly than in what we would call the business sector, the corporate business sector, hold more tightly to the correctness and the rightness of what they believe. So if you take those three things, right, a determination, I believe at times an overdetermination, what that results in is that notion of thinking that if they talk more and talk more strongly and talk longer with longer paragraphs and pages, if you will, and which in turn minimizes or at least lessens their actual, what I call curious listening, that sets you up for some pretty serious communication problems in the organizations. Right. And as difficult as, as it is to say, not difficult to defend, because every time I say it, all of my, if you will, Jewish-based clients agree. Uh, I haven't had someone raise their hand and say, no, you're not right. It is not the most productive place to try to communicate, and let me stress this, collaboratively. And that's the difference. There's a lot of communication. It's just, it's just <laughs> not re- exactly. Yeah. And so, this, are you finding this among professionals and lay leaders, or more so? I was going to ask a little more about that dynamic about sure. you know, inner professional and professional and lay leader and inner lay leader, right? It's kind of these different elements that you're you're dealing with. Is that yeah. something you've observed across the board? Is it more prevalent yeah. in professionals? Yeah, I think it's actually. I'm just running the lay leaders through my head for a second. There's a couple who are, quote unquote, really good, right, who, who do tend to listen. But I'm telling you, most of the lay leaders, especially a synagogue and federation world, and I've seen not just about Los Angeles, but there in New York and onward, 
the lay leader struggled just as much. You can make the obvious hypothesis or guess as to why fairly easy. I mean, it's a classically mission-driven organization, which tends to bring out more emotion. And if you are not very, very conscious of how you are making choices, if you will, under the pressure of talking from an emotional place, you're going to go on too long, listen too little, and argue too much. Right. And that, I've seen both sides, if you will, staff and lay leaders fall into that. So from my experience, and I'm sure experience of a lot of my listeners, when you talk about that mission-based work, mm-hmm. um, it brings up for me the effort to look at the issues of conflict through that lens, right? So right. we have these missions that are value-based and we try to look at conflict and say, what are our values here, right? How do we have a breach or have a contract or have right. something between our lay leaders and our staff or our staff and our staff or our leaders and lay leaders that helps mitigate this conflict because we feel like by putting that on paper, by having people sign their name to it, by saying this was collaboratively put together, somehow magically you have this document that will change your behavior in some way or mitigate your behavior in some way. Is that true? (laughs) Does it it help that that we put out a values of honesty, of collaboration, of these Mm -hmm. things you're saying we don't Mm -hmm. have? (laughs) Does it, right. because, I mean, yeah, you know, corporations have similar values, right? Whole Foods has, mm-hmm. a, you know, a very holistic, earthy values to it. Right. Does that actually help to outline, okay, these are our values and that's how we should approach conflict and conversation and how we treat each other? Or does it just make us feel good to write that piece of paper out and put it on our wall, but right. it doesn't actually influence what we do? It's a big, huge, giant, it depends. That's the answer because... I have done the Breit work uh, in more than one Jewish organization. I have done, you know, showing, I guess, my age here. I've probably done two dozen, call them core values exercises in various sizes of for-profit businesses. And I would say, if I just run the math real quick, that a majority of them, though incredibly well-intended, people are really imbued with the spirit of it at first. Because it is almost like, I so respectfully use the comparison, you know, the the Torah guides us on on how to behave. And it Mm -hmm. is the passing down of expectations and of values and of beautiful stories and lots of detail to back this up. But I would ask, you know, anyone in your listening audience, you know, do we not fall short of that, right? But in corporate life and in the Jewish organizational life, I do see not every organization do the work of codifying desired behaviors, but I can think of, you know, four or five just off the top of my head. Here's what happened. Here's where it mostly, let me stress that, mostly falls apart because when that document is typically done, you know, follow the formula here, right? Because the senior management, whether it's the senior rabbi or whether it's the CEO or whatever it is, they're the ones who are typically the advocates of it at first. Mm -hmm. But what that does is that puts the senior management, specifically whatever position you want to, you know, put into that, that puts a real high pressure on them for one thing. And that is they must live by the breed or the core values, right? Exactly. All the eyes turn toward the senior folks. And the moment, I promise, the moment that those folks, if they don't listen, or if somebody thinks they're 
doing something of not collaborative, guess what gets said? Well, if they're not going to do it, then I'm not going to do it. And it starts this whole downward spiral, mm-hmm. which, by the way, to the partial theme of our talk here, sets up some very important but difficult conversations to try to highlight or point this out. And who is going to do that in a place that doesn't live by its rules or perceived to live by its rules? So the death knell of most of these values and brief efforts is really, it lays at the feet of the senior management. And of course, they have every reason to give you why they haven't stuck to it because they're busy or they're out trying to raise money or whatever it may be. As staff member, you can't necessarily like go up with your piece of paper and be like, wait a minute, like uh, you signed uh, this right. contract that said this thing and now you're doing like it. That's, that's right. <laughs> it's a hard thing to do, except, except under one really cool exception. And that is when that permission or opportunity is built into the brief. Right. To have the, what I call constructively candid conversations, regardless of where you are, does that take a risk? Does that push against the normal way of doing things? Absolutely. As you were saying before, sometimes you just have to go for it if it's important enough. But to wrap this part up, most places and people do these kinds of projects because they sound right, but when they reach the test of real time and of real emotion, they do very strongly uh, tend to struggle. Now, would it change if it were a document that was regularly revisited? Like if it was something that started your meeting every single time you had a meeting with your lay leadership, let's just read over this brief real quick, you know, just yep. to make sure that we, you know, are looking back on it. And really, before we start this meeting, this yep. is what we've all agreed to. Instead of, you know, you made the document, you did the document, it's on your wall, but no one ever really refers to it. Exactly. Again. Yeah. There is just like any good habit. It needs to be reinforced and practiced and reviewed, feedback, those kinds of things. If you can devote, a, I don't want to call it a formal process by any means, but have it inculcated into the real everyday, day in, day out actions of the organization, mm-hmm. you are going to have a much higher potential of it happening. I mean, think of it this way. Whatever happens mostly is what people pay attention to. Right. So I, mean, I think it was Aristotle, some, one of those quotes, right? Excellence is a habit. And so it's what you basically do every day that you're going to get better at. So to your point and your idea, if the organization, and by the way, this is what people like me advise, make sure that you are not going to do this initiative unless you are prepared to back it up in meetings, in things like interviews, in things like reviews. It has to be sewn in and out of the fabric of the organization. And when and if that happens, it is an incredibly powerful process to do. And Remember before I said, I mostly think of places that it hasn't worked. I've worked really hard. There's one client here in LA, not a a Jewish place, but a a client where I've been working on their core values with them literally now for eight, shoot, 18 years. Wow. uh, Off and on. Nice, lovely people and tremendous amount of confidence they've placed in our work together. But son of a gun, if they haven't been able to link improved sales and improved retention, to their core values work. I've seen it work well. And as I said, Jewish and not Jewish, I've seen it struggle. So let's talk a little bit about what this or not this, right? This whole concept of a breed or or writing down Mm -hmm. your values of how you operate. Walk us through a little bit of what 
works, right? So what is it like for you to come into an organization, you assess their problems, their issues, you work with them, you walk away, you call up six months later and say, hey, Brad, I just wanted to check in. I don't know if you do this or not, but yeah, it's going. They say, you know what, Drew? It's just, it's been fantastic. It's really working out better. We're having better conversations. If not this, even though this doesn't, you know, breeds don't have to say that they don't work, but if not that, What is it that makes a difference between that phone call six months later of things are doing great or, you know what, Drew, we loved our time with you, but things really haven't changed uh, the way that we were wanting them to? Yeah, the the chronology of the phone call that you referred to is a spot on example of where it's not going to work. So let me give you the two sides of it. Side number one, which somewhat reflects very typical example, I'll get a call, which is always I'm grateful for in this kind of word of mouth business. I'll get a call and they'll say, would you come to our board of directors meeting and talk about your work and instill some motivation in the board or in the senior staff so that we can change and communicate better? And I'll say, well, my statement is thank you, but what happens next? Mm-hmm. Because, because as I call it, there's a difference between planning a wedding and being married. Right. <laughs> and, and a lot of things that organizations and a lot of Jewish organizations, if we want to focus there, will do a lot of weddings. They will plan very meticulously to get everybody in the room and they'll figure out what to eat and they'll figure out where everybody's going to sit. No, literally. But the challenge is they don't build in anything more than hey, thanks for your help, Drew. This was really inspiring. You're a very inspiring speaker. So thanks a lot. We're going to be good at this. Inevitably, Michelle, if I am not, or someone in my kind of position is not on a more consistent conversational basis with that organization, say uh, every month, or in the case of some of my more, my individual clients, I speak to all of my individual clients whether it's a rabbi or it's a CEO or whoever, I speak to them weekly. So that formula is what heightens the chance for what I was saying in my last answer, which is about the notion of creating a practice. And I'm very specific in using the word practices. If you are not going to deliberately build practices of effective communication, practices of effective collaboration, right? And really doing the hard work of listening to each other in the pursuit of defining the specifics of that, then it is all just like, you know, going to temple once a year. Right. To be honest with you, I mean, that's the example. Do we really live it if we are treating it that lightly? Or a more sort of normal run-of-the-mill example, if you want to get in shape, you commit to a practice of whether it's the gym or whether it's a walk with your husband or whatever it may be, but that's happening ideally every day. That's what all the books say, right? That's what all the research (laughs) says. So that's what works. I am declining. When that phone call comes, would you come and work with our board for two hours? I decline it right? because it's a bad use of money and time because of the ultimate disappointment that's going to happen. Because then it's theater and entertainment, right? Because then you're coming totally. to be the entertainment for the retreat of what a great conversation to have, but not what your purpose is of really helping cure uh, the problem. Yeah. I mean, we, we, as you remember, as you remember in our class, right, we, we had some really good conversations, but we had 14 of them, mm-hmm. right, over time. You don't come in in a one-hour class or two-hour class 
and expect for the students to walk out with new ideas because there's so much else that you and your colleagues were going through of trying to process internships and career and life and figuring it all out. You need to create practical practices. That's what it really comes down to. Right. So that's kind of the more broad organizational view of of how we deal with with conflict uh, kind of top down. Mm -hmm. I want to discuss a little bit about the the individualistic of dealing with with conflict. So, and again, you can correct me, but from what I know of you and your work. So I'm a person in an organization. I am having a conflict with a coworker. I've sat down, I've like written out, okay, this is, you know, the things I'm, you know, trying to be all the values of my organization. <laughs> you find the time, right? And now you're sweaty, you're a little bit flushed, <laughs> you're right. maybe a little bit shaky. You walk into that room and you sit down and maybe write your seat's a little lower than their seat or maybe the last conversation was them standing over you in, in conference, right. right? So you assess your, your placement and where you're sitting and you launch into the conversation you want to have and you have this conversation however which way it goes with the things that you want to say and then the conversation is over, right? <laughs> right, right. Before you know it. Before you know it. And maybe you've said everything you wanted to say. Maybe you heard a different perspective and maybe you've both walked away better. Maybe you both walked away still frustrated, but you still have to walk into the office the next day and see that person. Right. So within the context, and you can talk about the actual process that I just outlined within that process, how do you deal with the repair side? How do you deal with the building back up of trust side? How do you deal with We've had this conflict. We've aired it all out. We've had a constructive conversation about both of our sides. We've come out with an understanding. But I go home and I come back and I see you. And obviously, nobody wants conflict. Nobody wants, you know, issues among their coworkers. How do you move forward from conflict? Right. Well, if I follow your example, which I bet is you were uh, laying that out, you could actually, in your mind's eye, see the people that maybe you've had those conversations with before. There were some interesting attributes of your example, which are really important for people to understand. Because what you built in, in terms of the story there, right? The working up, the getting the notes down, the walking in, getting the seat right. And what's interesting is you said, and I, you, you might remember, I just listen sometimes. You said it ends up being a constructive conversation. My point would then be, is if you have a constructive conversation where, for example, both sides, here's one of the criteria, both sides of the conversation, you and the colleague, for example, have about an equal amount of talk time. That's the first thing. We'll call it, just for fun, 50-50. If you're striking a 50-50 balance in a conflict-based conversation, the best thing that I can tell you is that you're going to be fine. You're not going to have to come back like you had something weird or bad happen. But your example, quite frankly, doesn't happen very much that I know of. Organizations that I get brought into to help, your story is a rare one. Here's what typically happens. Of the places, again, over the for 30 years and over the, let's stick with the Jewish organizations, right? What typically happens is people do not prepare. What they prepare for is they put together their strength, they're ready, they gird their loins, and in they march to either to tell the person maybe what they're doing wrong. It might be in a formal review of a mm-hmm. subordinate. 
or it might just be somebody who's on your team. If we even get that far, that's actually better than what happens most of the time. Because you know what happens to most, to most conflict, if you will, possibilities? Or you could even change the semantics of that. Chances to make things better. They talk about each other behind their backs. Yes, that is the classic. That is this person. Yeah, can you believe? And it's classic. Mm -hmm. It is. It's a a Shonda, though, right? To gossip. But there is more, and I see this truly, truly in the organizations I go to in the Jewish world. There is so much behind the back finding what I call uh, doing a job of venting, right? You find a friendly source, you go down the hall and you say, I cannot, can you believe what Michelle did? You know, I can't believe how she has gotten away with this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, to the extent the person is friendly, they're going to say, yeah, can you believe that? But here's what's missing. And what is present in your example is at least somebody being menschy enough to show up face-to-face, and at least move in a direction of honesty. That's pretty good. Now, on my website, you'll you'll see I break this up, right? Into people who won't do anything. I call them the silent. People who will vent, who will find the friendly face. And then people who, sort of like the example you were talking, are what I call the honest people. They go in and they give their honest opinion. Face-to-face, yay. However, the fourth place is what is so rare. And the fourth place is where you go in, and here comes the key difference. You go in with a clear intention to engage the other person toward understanding their position. Mm -hmm. Not toward going in and delivering messages that are making your hands sweaty. What you do is you go in, and this a lot of credit for this goes to a book I read called years ago called Difficult Conversations by Doug Stone at Harvard Law School. And he says, the problem is we go into hard conversations to deliver a message. We are going to speak our mind, right? What if we went into these conflict-ridden situations with a purpose, with an intention, to get the other person to share their story. Well, guess what that puts you in the position of? You've got to ask real good questions and you have to patiently listen and make sense of what you've heard. A person who shows up that way, which is as rare as anything you want to think about, at least in my world. Well, because what am I getting out of it? What am I... As what a- you're getting... Right. What am I getting out of coming in and hearing their perspective? Their perspective. Right? Because, <laughs> what, because what you get out of it, that's the, that's the irony. What you get out of it is a actual opening being created to mutually and collaboratively resolve the conflict. If you have this conversation and you walk in and you say, I want to hear from you... As to How what's going on about this, right? Going on, and at no point in the conversation do you get to express oh, your oh, perspective. Yeah. yeah. And you walk uh, away from that conversation, maybe feeling like the person you're in conflict with feels better about you, right? Feels better yeah. about the conflict. Yeah. You know, how do you then feel about that? Well, I don't, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily grant your full example there. Okay. Because you go in with the intention to get them to talk, to get them to share their story it then puts you on a more solid shared ground of you expressing your thoughts. 
Okay. And, Just and so it's, it's really both. Right. It's delaying and it's, in, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in the word invitation mm-hmm. for stories for another time as to why I love that word much more than trying to persuade or convince or, you know, prove you're right. Right. You actually should extend the invitation to the colleague or sometimes your whole team is mad at you. Right. Right. So what do you do then? Well, first, if the purpose is to have the best conversation, right, which it always, which it isn't always, sometimes we're so pissed and sweaty in our hands that the last thing we care about is the other person's opinion. We just want to let them have it. Right. Well, guess what? Go do that then, but do not delude yourself to think that you're going to have a healthier relationship and then come full circle back to your example, which you started with. That's when you show up the next day with the awkward weirdness. And I cannot help you with that because you weren't there to make it better. You were there to get something off your chest. Right. And I am the worst coach, as many of us are, (laughs) for that. That's for sure. And you mentioned the face-to-face aspect of it, right? Yes. Passive aggressiveness can only speak from my own experience. (laughs) Occurs in emails. It is atrocious volume that I find myself, and I'm sure this is, you know, the advice, right? Writing an email and then sitting on it because I know if I send that email, whatever my tone might've been in one way or another, I know I didn't come off right when I, you know, I wrote it from a place of being upset or being angry or frustrated. If I send that, that will just cause more problems. And if I read or if I have a trusted friend, who's not a colleague, maybe review it for me and say, maybe sure. use this word, but you know, that's not the norm. The norm is I'm pissed off that you did this thing. I'm going to email you. I'm going to CC my boss. Oh. Make a big thing. <laughs> I'm going to say, how dare you make this decision or how dare you do this? Or you don't understand what you're talking about because we want to be right. Or we feel obligated yeah. entitled to our work. Or as you mentioned, the issue we deal with in the Jewish community more so than maybe other communities is that sense of ownership of, Correct. of being rightness about something because Correct. we care so much about the work that we're doing. Correct. That Jewish person I spoke of, hypothetical Jewish person I spoke of at the beginning who talks too much, listens too little, and sticks too much to their point, they are difficult to work with or more difficult to work with. And they are, it is highly unlikely you will in a healthy way resolve conflict with them. That's why the conflict challenges and then all the scary stories around it run so rampantly through so many of these organizations. And let's be honest, it's a lot more interesting. It's like a horror movie, right? It's a lot more interesting to watch through our cracks between our fingers you know, to imagine what may have happened. But our organizations, pick anyone, the one that you're working in, the ones that I'm called to, my temple, whatever, HUC, every single one of these. Here's the irony. The only way these places are going to stay vital and productive and to grow and to innovate and all the rest, which we all just so know needs to happen, is to have conversations that they have been apprehensive to have about change about how scary change is. Those are just a a very close first cousin of conflict conversations, right? Right. So here's what I'm saying is, I honestly believe that until we see getting better at constructive candor is our obligation. It is our, it's not a nice thing to do. It's not a cool thing to go to class or read a book about. It is going to be the lifeblood 
of Jewish organizations going forward because we have way too many problems that we've tried to turn our head from because it goes up against what we believe is either right or that we've thought a lot about or talked a lot about. So this is much higher stakes. And as I go through these classes and everything and teach this, um, I'm obviously trying to raise the bar by talking about it as not just a nice fun thing to make your palms sweat less, you know? It's, 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 it's critical. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin, and you've been listening to my conversation with Drew Kugler, Leadership and Communications Counselor. My next interview is with Gali Cooks, the Executive Director of Leading Edge, Alliance for Excellence in Jewish Leadership. We discuss the work of the organization, as well as the changing climate for executives in the Jewish community. Here's a bit of our conversation. A segment of the people who attended this meeting, merely my founders, were like, wow, a theme here is that everyone's concerned about leadership. Everyone's concerned about not having a bench. Mm-hmm. They're saying, you know, let's say in five years and 10 years, I'm going to retire. I'm not sure who's going to take over. It kept coming up again and again and again. And this group, this core group, which really is my founding parents, if you will, of, of this venture, were like, okay, we have the capability to change that if we wanted to. And so basically started thinking about, you know, what might it look like for us to build a leadership pipeline? Because Remember, from a foundation's perspective, if you're investing money in an organization, just like a company, mm-hmm. I mean, foundations are almost like VCs, especially depending on like their risk tolerance. It really mm-hmm. is all about the talent to carry out that whatever the, the deal is. And so if you don't have like real skilled individuals who are at the helm of an organization, that organization is not going to be great. It's just right. not. And if it is great and they're not skilled people, that organization's not going to continue being great for a very long time. That was my next interview with Gali Cooks of Leading Edge. And for now, back to Drew Kugler. And these conversations, these conflicts that we're either not having or are having, don't just permeate our relationships in our organization, within our colleagues and our own health and wellness as far as the level of stress in our organization. It permeates the work of the organization and it permeates oh, yeah. the larger Jewish community. And so what I'm hearing you say is, unless we start from this, right, start from understanding how to communicate with each other, we're not going to be able to, to change and adapt in the way that we need to for the future. Exactly. And we're not going to be as good a, we're not going to be as good a spouse or significant other as we're going to be not to get too far reaching about this. But what I've seen the difference, my daughters are now 20 and 18 is I believe it hampers us as parents. If we think that we're going to just tell people what we think, because they're younger, and they're going to do it. And we're not going to deeply and with great curiosity, listen and engage them in conversations and have them tell their story. We have a much bigger problem than what goes on at the synagogue. Mm -hmm. That is that's where I've tried to take some of this work and schools have been some schools have been very uh, interested in of trying to teach kids because that's really by the time you're your age, and certainly by the time I'm my age, we're kind of set a little bit. I think working with younger people on these kinds of issues, because they still are open to believing that there's a possibility and that there's change ahead. Anyway, it's a bigger issue than just the synagogue. Yeah. So that's a, a great transition for what I wanted to touch upon next. 
which is on the area of feedback and mistakes and personalities in working on your individual issues. So I don't know how much you have to say Mm. on this, but I'm going to ask the questions anyway. Sure. So from a personal perspective, and I'm sure a lot of people are in this case, I have received feedback and I, I love feedback. I'm open to feedback. I engage with feedback. But over the years, I have gotten the same feedback and have tried my best <laughs> to, <laughs> to work on those those specific things. And gosh darn it, you know, some people are really good at this and you either say, I am who I am and you're going to deal with it because right. I've heard this my whole life and that's just who I am. And there's, I've tried to change it, but there's nothing I can do or not. You know, maybe they just say, I am who I am and you're going to deal with it. And you have the other people that's been right their whole lives trying to figure out or trying to please everybody else by hearing this feedback and saying, okay, how can I be better? How can I walk on eggshells and make sure that I'm mm. this thing that everybody tells me I can't do or don't do well. And so you try to have these conversations, right, with mutual feedback and, and constructive criticism, and you keep hearing these same things. And you want to be different. You want to be better. You want to be perfect for everyone. Mm-hmm. I tend to ask a lot of questions at once. So I, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm getting it. Yeah. Right. And then there's the leeway of mistakes, right? Right. At one point, are we just human? And that there's a certain level of, I'm sorry, that I made this mistake. I'm human. I made a mistake. I made up for it. Great. And how much do those mistakes then build into a bigger issue? And how much leeway do we give someone to say, you're human and you make mistakes? Great. But then you keep making those mistakes and it's no longer you're human and you make your mistakes. It's you're fired. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of looking at those two issues of how do you either know personally there are things about you that aren't ever going to change no matter how hard you work. Right. Them. And right. how much leeway do we give each other on we're only human. We have these personality traits and we make. Well, so the first question, which is, you know, how do we come to accept about ourselves that there are certain things that won't change because we probably don't have time or want to get into it too much for the listeners. I'm not sure of that every time. I believe as a premise of my work, that if the client is interested and curious and open enough, other than their height mm-hmm. and even the shoes, you can, you can change that. I believe that most things are changeable. If they are willing to be vulnerable enough to and aware and self-aware enough to not only accept feedback, but push themselves to ask hard questions in a self-talk sort of way, which says, why am I struggling so much with this? If I've received this feedback five times from four people, there's something that's not working here. And I read that really interesting way that people put this. When somebody, whether it's you or me or anybody, when we hear feedback, do we engage in what the therapists call interrogative self-talk? Do we ask ourselves questions? Or do we mostly engage in declarative self-talk? where we make statements like, well, you know, that's just the way I am. Right. Because once we decide the way we are is the way we are, we are going to be that way because we are going to do nothing to prove ourselves wrong. We are, that is a big part of self-image. Now, that, when you make that, it would be interesting for another show, right, to get into some of this feedback that, tends to be repeated for you or for other people. And I would be interested in finding out what the range of options you've brought to addressing the feedback. 
And I'm going to bet that one of them probably has more potential than the others, but maybe it didn't work right away. So we say, see, I knew it. I knew I couldn't change. That's just the way I am, right? So without, frankly, a little more detail, I got to stay at a general level there. But I, you and I would respectfully agree to probably disagree that I bet there's stuff about you that you could change if you truly went to that, if you were vulnerable or open enough place to say, I don't get it yet and I need to approach this in a different way, Mm -hmm. right? Interesting book. Again, I always tend to be a book recommender. Easy title, right? Write this one down, whatever. is a book called Mindset by a, a woman at Stanford named Carol Dweck, which basically says there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people with an open mindset and a closed mindset. Open believes that we still have possibilities to grow. Closed are the people who say, I can't change anymore. I am fully developed. And then the effect that has on their behavior. Now do me a favor and remind me of the second question. It was about, oh, go ahead. It was about mistakes. Right. Get back to that real quick. Is there, you mentioned that you want to work with students because they're more malleable to the idea that they can change. Yeah, they're more open. And yes. does, in this book, does she mention age as a factor of how much people are oh, yeah. willing to be open? Yeah. No one ever asks you, can you teach a young dog a new trick? <laughs> right. No one ever says that. They always, and I have a little line about this on the site. I say, can an old dog learn new tricks if the dog wants to learn? Right. Right. That is whether it's you or anybody else. If you come to the place curious enough without certainty about your ability to change and stay open, if it's important enough to you, that's just it. You might like that thing at some level that you're doing. You might find that professional or credible or whatever it may be. Or you think that and, that's, that's going to make you successful by being that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Then why the heck, despite what anybody says, you're going to hold on to that thing because it makes you feel good or right. Right. Or attractive or, I mean, you can go into the whole realm of this thing. Now, mistakes, mistakes, mistakes. Yes. Every single organization says the same thing that I've been to. We embrace failure. We think mistakes are great. That's where it comes (laughs) from. Well, here's what happens. There's a little, there's little tiny print that you never see and never hear. But the tiny print says you can make mistakes as long as you don't make them a lot. Right. Because... If you're making mistakes, then it starts to impact the perception of your competence. Mm -hmm. And when you lose the the, the belief that you know what you're doing, there is too much noise in the system about Michelle or about Drew or whoever it is. God, they just can't get it right. Well, then that's going to be the dominant narrative. Mm -hmm. Here's the point. The general difference between those who are constructively failing and destructively failing are how back to the notion of vulnerability and self-awareness, what are you doing with your mistakes? Mm -hmm. How are you learning from them? And most importantly, when something goes wrong, to go back to the famous, famous book, the second best-selling business book of all time, book called Good to Great. And from Good to Great, absolutely. Here's what the author says. Jim Collins says, The best leaders of us, who we all want to be better leaders, I think, when something goes wrong, we look in the mirror. When something goes right, we look out the window. 
the mirror is the only place where we will see something that we can really change. Here's the problem. The person yeah. who looks out the mirror and says, well, I just, you got to bear with me. We're going to make a lot of mistakes, you know, and doesn't accept responsibility. That act gets right. old really fast and they're going to move you out eventually. Mm -hmm. Even in Jewish organizations, which are mostly terrible at doing the courageous thing in hiring and firing. That's my other experience. Right. Because they're afraid, by the way, to have the difficult conversation. We go back to that, yeah. right? But the best organizations, the best teams, like medical teams, what do they do? They have postmortems. What went wrong? What did we learn? What do we do different next time? My last point on this, if I could instill more in individuals that humility to, not that I can instill humility, but I certainly can make a case for it, that people, when you make a mistake, do you look for the contribution that you made to the creation of that mistake? Do you look in the mirror? And if you don't, you're not growing. And if you do, you're going to really kick butt on a lot of people around you because you're going to grow because mistakes teach us. There are a few things that get under my skin more than a manager whom when a subordinate makes a mistake, yells at the subordinate Ooh, and takes really? no right. responsibility for any of the take right. on there. And as a person ultimately accountable for the work, yeah, that just, whew, that, that irks me. One last work-related question for sure. you. Sure. And I know that you've worked with many different people, obviously. Is there, in your opinion, a difference between the females that you work with and the males that you work with? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there certainly is. As a male coach, I am always take a little breath before I start advising females on issues that they point out to me they think they are being confronted with because they are female. The notion of the names that they are called, the notion of the decisions that are, are made around them. The very clinical difference is men don't do that, okay? That is not a statement of value. Right. That is not, I'm simply saying that the content is different because men, because of the inequality, right? Men are not confronted in the same way, i.e. with certain language, certain expectations around family, around those sorts of things. I probably have served over those, these years, 30 industries, right? I'm just Kind of making it right. up, but that's not that far off. And every single industry, there are gender-related communication and therefore leadership issues. And I have no way of, in my little world, of making them go away. What I do try to do in the conversations, especially with women who are feeling confronted with those, is I do try to get into that mirror conversation. As mm -hmm. hard as that is, given the reality that you face, what are your best set of choices? And you know what? I know we've talked here about a lot of things, but one overarching sort of theme, even if it's a little cliche, but cliches are cliches because they're true, it really comes down to the set of choices that you're willing to make on how to be, on how to show up to meetings. Are you conscious enough and aware enough, as in this case, as a woman, that the game is different Fair or unfair? Right. There's no doubt it is unfair, but then somebody like me is going to come up with a, a cute but true saying like, you know, the only flat ground is in cemeteries. I hate <laughs> to say it that way, right? That's where the absolutely no bumps are. Right. And it's how you deal with the bumps 
the professionalism, the spirit, and all the rest, sometimes accepting, that's the hard part, that it is unfair, and then moving on anyway. So then and that's our, true of so many things. Right. So then of the stereotype of females and males, are females mm-hmm. better at the mm. self-reflection, the growth, the open to feedback, and are men more the, well, that's just who I am and you're going to deal with it. And that's what makes yeah. me great leaders because I'm the whatever, whatever. Yeah. Are, they, are yeah. women more open to change and adaptability than men are? Or is it the opposite? Or is it you find it in everyone across the board? That's right. Uh, everyone across the board carries different levels of masculine and feminine characteristic. It really depends. I know some women who I've uh, tried to coach who are impossible to work with because they believe they can't change or are impossible to work with because they won't look in the mirror right? All that kind of stuff. I've mm-hmm. worked with men who are overly sensitive, who are too worried and paying attention and stereotypically, you know, cower in the corner and won't say anything and meekly show up work. So it cuts back and forth that way. I probably, I'm looking at a sheet on my desk. I've got probably half and half in terms of my individual clients. And to be honest, to really sum it up, they're more similar than they are different. Mm-hmm. because they, the thing they share in common, thank goodness, is they all want to grow. Right. And they are all becoming increasingly comfortable with, as you say, looking in the mirror or taking responsibility that regardless of what the person to their left or right does, here is how they are going to show up. And sometimes showing up means saying nothing, mm-hmm. right? Just listening. And that's really hard in the professional, regardless of Jewish or not Jewish, to show up and not make it about you, especially in a leadership role, right? Mm -hmm. That's the interesting, by the way, that's the interesting research. I would point people to a bunch of stuff in the New York Times last year that actually said that the feminine characteristics, obviously that women would carry more, is especially effective on teams because women, the feminine characteristic, have a greater ability to observe and make sense of nonverbal behavior, which means they can pick up little cues in rooms where teams are. And so the research actually says, if you want to have a higher performing team, regardless of industry, so that whoever's listening, right, whatever team you're on, your team is going to be better if it is partially or not fully populated by women. That's the thing because they tend to read body language better. Right. Which gets into a whole other thing, which I'd love to talk about yeah, at another no, point, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You know where, I, you know where yeah. I'm going is when we're staring at our devices in meetings and we're sending that email to tell that person how mad we are, <laughs> we are missing the most important communication right. in the room, nonverbal communication. And that means we're hurting our teams by looking at our phones. If we're in a room and team meeting and someone's on their phone the whole time, you don't know what they're doing, but you're definitely not paying exactly. attention. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> bring, me, bring me back for that one because that's, that's, right. that's as big a communication problem as any organization is having. Well, Drew, considering everything that we have talked about, you've given a plethora of advice in different, Great. different ways, but is there anything else you can think of for our listening audience of yeah. professionals, of lay leaders, of rabbis, of whoever yep. picks this up in any way? When thinking about conflict, when dealing with conflict, internally, externally, teams, one-on-one colleagues, yep. supervisors, what are your, your final yep. thoughts? For yeah, whether, whether it was the quote from Ecclesiastes or whether it was just uh, the person who said we have uh, two ears and one mouth, I tend to try to remind, if you will, my Jewish audiences what a better place it would be where you work. 
if people said a little less, listened, genuinely listened more and did one more thing, and that was ask curious questions about how we're all going to get better. That, and, and if you literally enter into the room with that humility and that openness and that willingness to help your organization and you are going to really, really have a much better chance of being productive and engage places to work. So Fantastic. that more than anybody else, I wish that for my, my Jewish colleagues. Thank you so much, Drew. And You're I know so you, welcome. you are way more expensive than I'm <laughs> able to pay you with well, presents. Not um, a problem. I really you, I've, appreciate yeah. you coming on the program and um, giving well, us a little bit of your, your expertise in this area. Well, I know a lot of people deal with this. And as you mentioned, the internal conflicts reverberate through our organizations. And this is a much bigger topic than this one hour conversation. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I am sincere in that if you want another opportunity as you learn more through your podcast, I just need to say that I'm proud of an ex, a former student doing something to legitimately and in a creative way help. So I'm proud to help you out. So oh, that's, you so that's been, been fun. So please, best of luck. And, uh, and thank you for inviting me. Of course. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, Drew, for joining us on the podcast today. Such a pleasure to be able to reconnect with a wonderful professor of mine to really talk about a topic that influences pretty much any professional, any human being that we work with. And if you're in an organization that's experiencing conflict issues, the main message that I get from Drew is that it's better to deal with these conflicts than to push it under the rug and pretend like it doesn't exist or will go away on its own. And however you choose to deal with these issues, really identifying what those issues are and making the changes that need to happen a real part of your daily culture of your organization really makes a difference. To just do a one-off analysis or conversation between staff members might heal things in the short term, but really thinking about culturally what changes can be made to the way that your employees work together to make that change long-lasting. You're able to help your employees or colleagues see the situation from each other's perspectives. Not only will they feel heard, but you come one step closer to creating that culture of open communication, problem-solving, and sympathetic care for one another, which in turn makes your team better and makes your organization better. A lot of times, especially in the Jewish community, we hold very deeply and very closely our ideas and beliefs about what is best for our organization and what is best for the work. And sometimes that clouds our judgment as to how we deal with the other people in our organization who might have different ideas or perspectives on that same work. And the main thing to keep in mind when having these conversations is starting with asking about the other person, starting by being open with what they think, how they feel, what's their perspective of the situation. And you might find your own closely held beliefs soften a little bit when you open yourself up to the humanness of your colleagues. And the last thing that I'll leave you with is something Drew said, is the difference between having a wedding and being married. And while not all lay leaders and professionals in your organization are bought in for life, they are there for a reason. And when dealing with conflict issues, keeping this in mind, thinking about one-off solutions in a broader context of some possible changes is really important. 
As always, Drew's full bio and contact information is on our website, which is actually new than what's been previously recorded. Uh, we've now changed over to it's who you know the podcast.com, where you'll be able to give us any feedback on this conversation or previous conversations, as well as suggestions for future interviews. This is Michelle W. Malcolm, your host for It's Who You Know the Podcast. We appreciate you being with us today. We hope you have a wonderful week. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at it's who you know podcast.wordpress.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.